The writer of Hebrews, like many of the writers, scribners of the New Testament, when they have written a, especially a long letter, they talk a lot about theology. And in Hebrews, it was a lot about Jesus is better and Jesus is better than anything that you can place up against. And then there'll be some warnings and some encouragements. And then Hebrews chapter 11 was pretty much one of those where it causes us to remember that God's plan has always been that he was pleased by his people's faith and was written to remind us and to encourage us to do likewise. Now in chapter 12, he is going to give us some practical application, if you will, especially in these first few verses of chapter 12. And then he's going to give us some more warning later in, in the chapter. Um, so for those of you who are saying, well, how am I going to have a better Monday or whatever? Uh, this is the Bible's answer to how to have a better life. So it starts off with verse one. It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, there are those who believe what the writer here is saying is that in essence, we are like in a large um, stadium. And there are all these people looking and watching our performance. First off, I'm not that narcissistic. Second, that's not the context of the, the scriptures. Therefore, since means because of what's gone ahead, this is what is now to be discussed. So it's because of that we have had so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. So it's not that they're watching us, that, they, that they've testified. So what I want you to do, instead of thinking as a stadium, I want you to think of as a courtroom. In a courtroom, you have to prove your case. And in, in American justice, there's three forms of proof, burdens of proof. One is that you have a, the, the burden of proof uh, by the preponderance of evidence, which means if you have 51% of the evidence versus the 49, you generally win as long as that evidence is credible. The second form of uh, burden of proof is called clear and convincing evidence. That's a standard above preponderance. You have to demonstrate clearly and convincingly that you ought to win. Then the third standard of burden of proof is called beyond a reasonable doubt. It doesn't say beyond all doubt. It doesn't say beyond all crazy doubt. It's beyond all reasonable doubt. And those are the, and so what is happening here is the writer of Hebrews, if you will, has introduced witness after witness after witness in the trial to demonstrate that God is pleased by faith and his people live by faith and we are to do. So in that chapter 11, he says, my first witness, if you will, was Abel, that he worshiped in faith and that that was so valuable that it was okay even to die a martyr's death because even now his blood still speaks of the Lord. And then he brought on as a witness Enoch who walked with God 
and was no more. And he brought on Noah, who did what God told him to do. And it was about 100 years that he cut down trees and prepared wood and, and built a boat in the middle of dry land. And then he talked about Abram and Sarai and how they were old past childbearing years and that Sarai had been barren even when they were married. But that God promised him that his, his children and his issue would be greater than the stars if you could count them. And Abraham believed him and God did so. And Sarah as well. And then he keeps bringing on witness after witness. He brought Moses and he brought the, the children of Israel who walked around the Jericho and the walls fell and he, and he brought Rahab and he brought Japheth and, and Gideon and others and the prophets. And he kept on bringing various witnesses so that we might have not a preponderance of it evidence even more than clear and convincing proof, but that the testimony that has been given to us by these witnesses has been beyond a reasonable doubt. We should no longer doubt that what God wants us to do is live in faith. If we were in a courtroom, if we were presenting all of these, and, and that wasn't all, he, was, he gave people after people, and then he didn't even list certain. He said, well, there were women who gave were giving back their children and from death, and that there were those who didn't get stuff, but still lived in faith that they were stoned and, and cut, sawed in two, and made destitute, and all these things because they look forward to God's resurrection, not the circumstances. And so we had all of these witnesses. And if we were in trial giving all this, the judge would say, this is cumulative. I'm not going to let you give all of these witnesses because it just reestablishes and reinforces what you've already said. Well, that's how God is. He's given us so many witnesses that we should have no doubt what God desires of us. So because we have so great a cloud, of, because there have been all of these witnesses throughout the centuries, because of that, let us also Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. So his discussion is that we are also to do what they did. They laid aside the encumbrance. Now he said encumbrance and sin. Not all encumbrances is sinful. Playing chess is not sinful. Actually, playing chess may help you to have a better strategy and logic and thought processes, and it can be a good thing. But if you're playing chess to an addiction that you don't do other things or that you don't worship God or you can't come to church because you're so involved in chess, then you have been encumbered by it. And I use chess because I didn't want to use Halo and all the other games that everybody loves to play. So I use chess. But there is a sense of that we get so wrapped up in things that aren't not necessarily wrong and bad until we allow them to encumber 
us. And then also to lay aside the sin, which so easily entangles. It, we, we are to move. We are, and it's going to say how we're to move, but we're to move. And the problem is sin will cause us to trip up, will cause us to fall down, will cause us to stumble. And he's saying, if you get rid of that, you get rid of the encumbrance, you don't have to carry that around. If you get rid of the sin that's likely to trip you up, you're going to be able to do what he's going to encourage us to do. And what is that to do? And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. When we run a race, it is easier to run a race if you don't have weight that you're having to carry to run that race. And I don't care whether you're running a 100-yard or 100-meter dash or you're running a marathon. If you're carrying extra weight, it's going to slow you down and tear you out. And if you're always got things around your legs that might trip you, then you're going to potentially hurt, lose out on time and whatever. So he encourages us to run that race. But here's the problem. Most people don't think they're in a race. They're just glad that God gave them grace. I'm, I, if I make it by the skin of my teeth into heaven, that's all that's good as enough for me. And all too many people are like, and I've, I've shared this story. It's not my story. It comes from another pastor, um, but I think it's really applicable. He said that his sister and brother-in-law uh, decided to get their, their daughter, his niece involved in sports. And so they chose swimming. And so she, you know, practiced swimming and did whatever. And then there came a time when she would go to a meet. And so she went to, to the swim meet, and they go, this, this, his niece loved it. She went around and she talked to everybody. She, she didn't miss an opportunity to, 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 to discuss anything with everybody. And she was just as happy as could be. But in every time she swam, she lost. But it never seemed to bother her. It was, uh, you know, because she was just there and she was just enjoying the time. And this went through the whole swim season until the very last meet. And her mother knelt down and said, you know, I, I really like the fact that you have such a good attitude. But could you try to win a race? And the little girl looked at it and goes, this is a race? I thought it was a meet. I thought we were just here to meet people. I didn't know it was a competition. And so then she swam like it was a competition. Well, guess what? We live our Christian lives as if it's just a meet. We're here to fellowship with one another. We show up facing Long Beach, and it's all wonderful. When God said, no, we are supposed to run this race that is set before us. Set before us. Some of us have been set a race that's a 100-yard dash. Some of us have been given a race that's a quarter of a mile. Some of us have been given a race that is like a marathon. The situation is, is that all too often we want to compare our race with other people's race. 
So even if we're in the same race, let's say it's a it's a uh, a mile race. If you've ever watched the a track meet, again a meet, not a race, you will see in the long distances, not the the hundred yards, but the long distances that the that the runners are staggered in different positions because in in the outer lanes it the lane is longer so to make it all equal they stagger well if we don't know that and you sit there and you're ready to go and you look well wait a minute how am i going to win this race because that guy's already 30 yards or 50 yards or 70 yards ahead of me how am i going to catch that distance your race has nothing to do with what the other person is doing. It may be a staggered race. It may be that you're in a different race. Maybe they're going to run a 100-yard dash, and your job is to run a marathon. But we are to run with endurance, which means that we are to keep on keeping on. It doesn't matter if you're in a 100-meter dash that you run the fastest for 99 meters and stop. You lose. It doesn't matter if you run the marathon the fastest of anybody until you get to the 26th mile and then you decide, I'm going to sit and take a, take a nap. You'll probably lose. We are to run with endurance. Now, the problem is when it comes to being physically, I used to be able to run 100 yards pretty easily. Now I'm afraid to have a heart attack if I ran 100 yards because I'm carrying a whole lot more weight than I used to. These bones don't work as much as they used to, the lungs, whatever. But this race that we've been set isn't a training. We aren't racing to train to win. We are already in the race. So we are to run with endurance. The race that is set before us, not you, us. And then he gives us some more advice. So he says, we're to lay aside encumbrances and sin. We are to run with endurance. And we are to Fix our eyes on Jesus. Well, why do that? Because if you're running, let's say, a 100-yard dash, and you're looking all over the place, you're going to run all over the place. The way to win a 100-yard dash is to run straight and true. The way to win a marathon is not to take extra steps. You run to it. And so you run by looking straight and fixing your eyes on Jesus. Again, I shared this. One of the best vacations I ever had was the opportunity to spend four days at a racing school. And in one of those sections, they would deliberately cause you to spin out. They had these, these things that would cause the car to spin. And in that education that you're learning how to get out of that spin, they said the mistake many people make 
is when they're in a spin, they're afraid they're going to hit a tree. So what they do is they look at the tree, which guarantees they're going to hit the tree. He goes, when you're in a spin, what you do is you look where you want to be and you keep looking there and eventually you'll get there. Well, if you want to be in Jesus's arms, then you look at him. You don't go all over the place. You don't. Some, but the problem is, is the reason why we're to run with endurance is what happens when you get tired, you naturally start looking down. And when you look down, you no longer run straight. But when we run with endurance, we're allowed to look straight ahead and see Jesus. Peter made the same mistake. You recall, the disciples were in a boat. There was a storm. Jesus was walking on this stormy water, intending to pass by them. They were afraid. They thought maybe it was a ghost. And Peter goes, Lord, if it's you, call me to you. Which requires a lot of trust because anybody walking on the water who wasn't Jesus, maybe they might lie anyway. But Jesus says, come out. And what do the scriptures say? He steps out on the boat, which first off, as much as we like to ridicule Peter, he was the only one of the 11 that went, of the 12 that went out. Everybody else stayed in the boat. And he got to walk on water until what happened? He took his eyes off Jesus and looked at the waves. And then he began to sink. Now, the wonderful thing is, is he cries out to Jesus and Jesus saves him. But would it have been awesome? He never took his eyes off of Jesus. And then when he got back in the boat, he goes, you know, guys, it was awesome walking on the stormy water. It was like walking on dry land. Walking with Jesus, I mean, I can't tell you how awesome that is. But he lost the opportunity to talk about the thrill of walking with Jesus on the water because he took his eyes off of Jesus and put it on the way. And all too often, we Christians look at circumstances so much that we forget to walk with Jesus and the joy and the power and the awesomeness that that is. As we looked at circumstances, rather than looking at him. So we fix our eyes. We don't just glance at Jesus. We don't look at him periodically. We fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he's the perfecter and he's the author of faith. He's the one who developed it. He's the one who originated it. He's the one who has called us to be people of faith. So since he's that, then we look to him because he's the author and perfecter of faith. You want to have faith? Then you see Jesus. You want to have perfect, complete faith? Then you see Jesus. Then he gives us some of the things that Jesus did. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The joy set before him. Because you and I, who become believers, become children of God. And that gave him joy. So maybe when we suffer for the advantage of someone else, maybe we should have joy also. Because it then causes them to be children of God. Endured the cross, despising the shame. 
he didn't enjoy the shame. It wasn't, oh, you know, this is this is awesome. A uh, person who hangs on a tree is is accursed and all these things, and it's painful and it's humiliating and it's deadly. But he despised that, but did so anyway. And has sat down at the right hand of God, the throne of God. He did what God called him to do, enjoy. Not because he liked everything about it, but because God called him to do it. And when God called him to do it, he did it. And then he was allowed to sit at the right hand of God. God calls us. Maybe we should be faithful and do. Verse 3 says this. Or consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. So he goes, think about it. What did Jesus endure? You think you've had a bad day, month, year, life. Jesus created all that there is. Jesus sustains all that there is. Yet his own people ridiculed him and mocked him and sent him to death and persecuted him and condemned him on a cross. And he has told us, if they treat me that way, how are they going to treat you? You think you're better off than Jesus, who is the creator and sustainer of all things. So consider what Jesus went through for our benefit. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. One of my greatest fears about the church today is we are told so much about, if you just believe for it, if you just this and you just that, that we have this whole concept that is not biblical. And when those things that aren't biblical don't happen, then everybody goes, well, my faith is worthless. Yeah, because you put your faith in that stuff and not God. But when you put your faith in God, you will not grow weary. Sometimes it's just difficult in life to put one foot in front of the other. But when you're seeing Jesus, you've considered what he's done. Like walking on air. You do not grow weary. I just want to rest for a while. I just want to sit. No, no. I'm going to keep on keeping on. I'm going to keep on walking or running in faith. And lose heart. One of the greatest obstacles to winning is a negative attitude. Well, I can't do that. Well, you're right. You can. But when you decide, 
that I am going to enter the race and I'm going to win the race. There's very little that's going to stop me. So, running the race that has been set before us, what God has called you to do. God has given us witnesses to say, you can do it. You can do it. I did it. And I'm not better than you. That's the awesome thing about the scriptures. There's very few people who are written in the scriptures that nothing negative is written about. Enoch is one. Enoch walked with God and was no more. Noah gets drunk and does some weird thing. Samson. What an idiot. I mean, he's, he's involved with a woman who tries to get her to tell her what his, where his powers come from. And when he tells her something different, she plays the victim and says, oh, you lied to me. Didn't matter that she tried to have him arrested and killed. He was an idiot. You can be an idiot too and have faith in God. You can be like Elijah on that mountaintop experience, making fun of all of those priests of, of Baal. And then after that happens, he prays that it might rain since it has been raining for three and a half years. He goes, his servant goes, you know, there's a cloud about the size of a fist. He goes, take off running because it's going to be raining hard. And this old man, talk about winning races, is able to outrun a chariot. But then he gets all hurt and says, oh, woe is me. I'm the only one left standing here for God. And I go, what are you talking about? I got a whole bunch of people who never bowed to me. The scriptures don't expect you to be perfect. They expect you to believe God. I have no chance to be perfect. I like to be, I tell people I am, try to convince them. I never get to convince them. You know, I can be a faithful. I can believe God because God has never lied. When God says something, it will happen. As God said, faith is easy. So I encourage you this morning to not just come to the meeting. Oh, sure, it's a lot of fun to talk to all the contestants, it's a lot of fun to talk to the press. It's a lot of fun to do all kinds of stuff. But we have been given a race to run. And we should run it to win.
We run into Wren by removing sin and encumbrances. We fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, the world likes to get us distracted. I mean, this world has fallen apart, but it's been falling apart since Adam. So it likes to distract us. No. If you want to go out and, and protest or whatever, fine, do it, but don't take your eyes off Jesus. Because then you get distracted. Keep your eyes on him. And keep running the race. The last scripture I want to share comes from 2 Timothy. I didn't give them this. It's 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting with verse 6. You see, Paul is a little different than most of us. Paul knows his time is about at hand. Most of us aren't given a saying, okay, on a certain date at a certain time, you'll no longer be a part of the living. You know, some people die in accidents. Some people have heart attacks. Some people, all kinds of stuff. Most of us aren't given an expiration date on the bottom of our foot. Paul says this, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have finished my race. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. You see, Paul knew exactly when his race was over. But most of us won't. So I encourage me, I encourage you to run, 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 run until you're called home. And only then do you finish the race. And when you finish the race, back in the times that this was written, the winner of a race would get a garland crown. A bunch of leaves that wouldn't last a month. But they competed hard for that wreath and the joy of saying, I'm the winner. God has called us to run the race, to give us a crown of life, to celebrate that victory. Not because we're the fastest one. Not because we're the strongest. But because he is. And we're on his. I pray that this message isn't just a good message. You know, it's space that I'm human. I, but I hope it caused you to think that He has made a way for you to compete. That He has given you people who has encouraged you to do so. He's given you encouragement and strategy. To win the race.
and that we, from this moment on, compete for him because he's worth it. And all God's people.